on 10.3 today, page 28. So if you want to turn there. And we are going to pick up a pastorally important topic that we have discussed before and we will discuss some more today. Uh, and that is about infants who die as infants. So like I say, we have discussed this before pastorally. This is always... Uh, a sensitive and important topic, and so we want to uh, discuss it with reverence and with sensitivity here as well uh, this morning. So 10, section 3. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit, who works when and where and how he pleases. The same is true of every elect person who is incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. Okay, and so we have discussed this one a number of times. We've gotten there from different uh, angles. Um, and again, by way of summary, I'd be curious. There's basically been three views that have been held on uh, the salvation of infants and handicapped people. Uh, through the ages. Is anyone brave enough to recap what those three possibilities are? Yep, Lisa? Okay, that's one view. Okay, well then let's say, if we're going to include that one, then let's say there's four views, okay? So infants go because they're innocent. Yep. Okay, that's one view. Three more. The infants of believers are saved. Yep, that's one. Right, so in that view, all babies who die are in heaven. Yep. Yeah, so, yeah, so Katie said that only, the only babies that God allows to die in infancy are elect babies. So that's another way of saying all babies who die in infancy are saved. Um... And the, the last view kind of isn't a view because it's kind of punting. It's just saying we don't know. There's not enough information in the Bible to know. We don't know. Okay? Uh, and of those, of those four views, which one can it not be? There's only one that's theologically impossible of those four. Dying in innocence. Yeah, that's the only one that's impossible to reconcile with the scriptures. So it must be one of the other three. And you'll notice... Uh, on some issues that even once we're dealing with confessional Christianity, which is uh, careful to lay things down in a precise manner, the way this is worded, does it settle it? Does it pick between those three views? It does not. This is worded in such a way that you could hold any of those three views. Okay, uh, Because it's not saying which infants it's not making a, a claim on how many uh, infants that is that would die uh, in this state. So you could con confessionally hold any of those three views. I have shared my own view before, um, and that is that I do believe that all infants and handicapped people are under the blood of Jesus, all those who die, but this is not on the basis of innocence. And this can be forgotten uh, relatively quick. I, uh, 
was reading up, I don't know if any of you have heard of John Gerstner, he was kind of a sole conservative Presbyterian in Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, uh, and I was reading a little anecdote of his, this is in the 1950s, let's say, when he would have been ministering, and he was kind of filling in uh, at a church for one Sunday, uh, and as Presbyterians, they baptize infants, and uh, so he went to this church, and uh, was asked to perform an infant baptism on one of the babies, and there was um, a white rose that was put in a vase up by the baptismal font. And he says, well, what's this? what does this rose mean? And can, keep in mind, these are conservative, reformed Presbyterian people. And they said, well, that's to signify the innocence of the baby. And he said, okay, so well, then why are we baptizing it? And <laughs> they... They discontinued the practice of putting a rose up that, in, that somehow symbolized the supposed innocence of the baby, right? Uh, even in a pedo-baptist framework, if this baby's innocent, you, there would be no need to give it a symbolic cleansing because it's good to go. So what this is not saying, and this is important too, this is not saying that all people are under grace until a certain age or until a certain time, and then they might become non-elect. The status of election never changes in a, in a person's life. It's not like everyone's elect until they're age eight, uh, and then we don't know after that. The status of an individual person never changes through the course of their life. God knows what God knows. His decree is his decree. Uh, this is just saying, what's the nature of those ones who die uh, in infancy? And so that's the broad framework of this. Let's get into the texts. But I'll, I'll maybe stop there and ask if there's discussion on these different views. Okay. Okay, so Ron's saying, uh, what's, what's the nature of Dr. Gerstner's criticism of baptizing a baby if it's innocent when Christ got baptized and was innocent? Right? Christ also died in innocence with the imputed sin on him. So the reason Christ got baptized, in my understanding, is um, for people like me and you that don't come from Jewish descent. Because in the old covenant system, for Gentiles to convert, they had to go through a ceremonial washing. They had to wash off their Gentile filth to come into the people of God. So there was, baptism was already a practice at that time. And so my understanding of the baptism of Christ uh, isn't because he needed a ceremonial cleansing for himself. He needed it for Ron Hamster and for Matt Plett to, in, it, to integrate us into the covenant people of God. So he did that on our behalf, like his other righteous actions, including his death, right? Which he also did not because he deserved to die, but because the filth of his people were put, were put on him. So I would, I would see Jesus' own baptism as unique in that sense. Same as his death was unique. It, he died like me and you are going to die. But the nature of his death is somewhat different because me and you both deserve to die, right? Whereas he, he didn't. And I don't know if I'm understanding properly. Anything else before we go on? Marina and then Lisa. Okay.
Right. Okay, let's go to Romans 1. And I have to find the exact verse. Okay, let's start at verse 18. This is to Marina's point. And if you didn't hear, Marina's saying, okay, well, what about holding people to account? We don't hold uh, an 18-month-old accountable for having enough motor skills to keep their milk from spilling. So how does that relate? Uh, And I think it is an important part of this conversation. So verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So what Paul is doing here is establishing everyone's universal guilt. But he's doing it in such a way that presupposes that they can perceive, that they have their faculties. Right? A a six-month-old doesn't have the faculties to clearly perceive. Right? Uh, A very handicapped person does not have the capacity to perceive the things that me and you can perceive in the world. Right? Anyone who's ever watched a sunrise or been to the Grand Canyon is accountable to God because they just took in enough knowledge in all those things. They know with certainty that God is and God is creator. A six-month-old or a Down syndrome person don't have that. So that is one piece of the puzzle that I put into my inference that I think all who die in this state are, are under the grace of Christ, partially because they, they can't this. Uh, let's go, Lisa and then Alfred. That would be another way of putting it. Yep. And I wouldn't disagree with that at all. So Lisa's saying that infants don't have actual sin yet, but they have a sin nature. Right. Yeah, and that that is true. So they're not they're not willing participants in their sin at a certain small age. Yeah. That's right. But that doesn't make them innocent because they're still guilty seed of Adam. Yeah. Alfred. Okay, my understanding, and this is largely through history, because there's actually this isn't parsed out in the Old Testament. Um, the Jewish people had a, a right of baptism for Gentile converts. So if a Gentile convert would come into the Jewish people of God, they had to go through a ceremonial washing. They had to get baptized uh, as a symbolic cleansing away of their guilt uh, or their dirtiness from coming in from outside, so to speak. Because Christ died for Jew and Gentile. So this is his form of obedience. So for me and you, in that old system, to have been incorporated into the people of God, we would have had to have been baptized. Right? And so this is him fulfilling the law for Jew and Gentile. Right? So he's, he's doing this out of obedience. There's more to the baptism as well, in terms of what it's typifying. But in terms of just the mechanics of it, Uh, I think he's doing this on behalf of the Gentile people so that he's fulfilling all righteousness for us as well uh, as what's in the Mosaic law. 
And then there's the typological connection, of course, of death and resurrection and, and so forth. I'm not denying that. I'm just adding the piece about how the Jews would have understood baptism at that time. Unless I'm misunderstanding. Okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. Anything else on this? Okay, so if I'm understanding, why are we saying it's a thing that babies don't have this ability when really... Right, and you're comparing that... Right. But if I'm understanding, then you're comparing it to what any unregenerate person also doesn't have that ability because there's no desire to do it. I think the difference is... The grown-up person, even though they refuse to repent of their sin, um, they're willing participants in it. They understand their actions in a way that a six-month-old does not. Right? So there, there is a level of understanding there that a small child doesn't have. Um, and that can be pushed too far where we say, well, okay, well, what about the innocent bushman in the tribe situation? To which we'd say, there's no such thing. Right? They're, they're sinning against the light of nature that they have. Um, so that, that can be pushed too far. But I would say small children can't perceive, they can't understand their actions. Yeah, even their sinful ones. Whereas the adult clearly does. More, or should we get into the texts here? Okay, then let's get into it. John 3. Who wants to take John, and it's got a couple verses there, so why don't we just go uh, verse, well, take it from the beginning through to the end, actually, verse 8. Who wants to do that? John 3, 1 through 8. John, okay. And then, yeah, well, and then we've got both proof texts there, because the John 3, 8 is the next one. So why don't you read it, and then we can discuss it. Okay, this is such a rich passage on so many ways, okay? Here it's being used to support the idea uh, that infants can be regenerated, um, and I believe that is the case, 
Because, again, if we work with the supposition that the Holy Spirit makes you alive after you decide to be born again. Okay? Keep this in mind. If you get the rebirth as a result of your decision to be born again, there is no hope for any infants. <laughs> because they can't do that. Infants can't decide that. Okay? So the Holy Spirit will not come to them. Mercifully, this passage is saying the exact opposite. The Holy Spirit goes where it wants. And what you see, the rustling of the leaves that you see, is a result of the Holy Spirit, wind, moving through a person. Okay? The repentance and the faith and the sanctification you see is the consequence that the Holy Spirit has been there. That's why you're seeing the leaves ruffling, because the wind has been through there. Okay? This is true of grown-up people, but I think this is also the basis for our hope in small children. They don't need to understand to a certain degree. They don't need to be regenerated by a decision that they're incapable of making. God just does it. Okay? He just does it the same way he does for grown-up believers. Okay? The Holy Spirit changes the heart, and we see the fruit. And so... That's why I would want to suggest that infants are saved. Well, and this is saying the same thing. Infants are saved the same way that we are. Through regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Through the rebirth. Through being born again. Now, they're not going to have a profession of faith. They're not going to even have a real understanding of their faith, like me and you do. But that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit can't cover them with the blood of Christ in their state of lack of faculties or whatever. And the same would be the case for handicapped people. We don't know. We're used to what faith looks like to our adult mature minds. What does faith in Jesus Christ look like to someone with Down syndrome? Okay? Pretty crude. But can it be real? Okay? What does faith in Jesus look like to a two-year-old? Pretty crude. <laughs> but it can be real. Okay? We're not saved by the strength of our faith. We're not saved by the uh, intellectual understanding. We're saved by faith in Jesus. We're saved by the rebirth. And therefore, handicapped and small people can be under the blood of Jesus because this is the work of the Spirit ultimately. But that's why the way Katie phrased it might sound like parsing, but it's actually important, I think, to put it that way. So we don't run up into this kind of non-stable, uh, each person kind of hanging in the balance kind of thing. We're not saying all babies are saved. We're saying that the only babies who are permitted to die in infancy are saved. It sounds like parsing, but there's a difference there, right? Because in the first view, if we say all babies are saved until, until they start hanging in the balance at age 8 or age 20, that's a different thing than saying uh, some, are, some are of Adam and some are of Christ. That won't change in the course of their life. 
right? It's not like the, uh, it's not like the, the switch flips at a certain age for everybody, right? And then we have to switch it back on or off. This is saying, and again, this is an inference. There's not chapter and verse for this. This is trying to put all the pieces together, and that's why there isn't unanimity on how this exactly works, because we are working a little bit in the dark. But this is saying um, that if God lets these ones go, somehow they're under the blood of Jesus Christ. Somehow they have been reborn. And hypothetically, had they grown to be age 20, they would have been believers, right? Um, They wouldn't lose it if they're one of God's sheep. But that's, again, a hypothetical, that we're doing inference work here. That's right. And that's why we're inferring, and that's why this is worded in such a way that everyone can live in peace, (laughs) even if we don't have it exactly nailed down. Alfred and then Howard. Amen. A hundred percent. And eat, uh, and that's. Uh, and that's a really good point that Alfred said. Did everybody hear Alfred? Emotion plays into this because everybody wants babies and handicapped people to be in heaven. Okay? And I'll admit, when we're doing inference, if I'm left to three views that are all biblically faithful, I'd be lying to you if I said I don't think I'm partially attracted to the view I hold because I want to believe it. If I'm honest, that is part of the, the reason. <laughs> I find one more compelling than the others. I think they can all be biblically faithful. But you're right, emotion, emotion does play in here to a degree that's maybe okay because God made us with emotions, so they're not irrelevant. But emotions make very poor masters. right? So our emotions... Can I tell another John Gerstner story? This is a, 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 a great one that he told to one of his students. Are we ready for something that's really emotional? He asked one of his students, could you rejoice at watching your mother in hell from heaven? Could you rejoice in heaven watching your mother burn in hell? And all of us are appalled at that question. And if we're Christians, we all would have to say yes, because this is good. <laughs> this is righteous. This is a display of God's holiness. Now that cuts exactly against our emotions. But if this is God's judgment on the situation, <laughs> we have to agree with God. And we will not disagree with God in heaven. 
To be sad about it in the presence of God would be to say, we think God got it wrong. But we will be so enraptured with the holiness of God that we will not be sad about anything of the final outcome of things. And I know that sounds like I'm trying to drop a sound bite. Think about it. Think about it. The first time I heard Dr. Gerstner say that, I'm like, But he's right. John Gerstner is right. If God says so, it's good. It's good. And you do not have permission to disagree. Howard, and then we'll go back here. What's that? Okay, good. (laughs) Pull us out. Amen. And that pastorally, application-wise, is wonderful because that means you can play happily. (laughs) You can evangelize happily and you might go to bed saying, I wish I would have said this different. But you're free from the guilt of saying, because I didn't say it better, (laughs) now this person is... God will work. But then you have the freedom to say, Kate, God, forgive me. I didn't handle that well. You dust yourself off, put a smile on your face, and go do it imperfectly again the next time. And this also helps us in challenging times. Um, An unapproved hero of the faith by today's standards. Who's ever heard of Stonewall Jackson? Okay, Absolute hero of the faith. He was on the wrong side of a civil war, so we're not allowed to like him. But he was a hero of the faith. And he had a Southern Presbyterian by the name of R.L. Dabney as his personal chaplain in the Confederate Army. Um, And Stonewall Jackson said, the reason I'll go in if it's 30 to 1 is because I can't die before it's my time. I am invincible until the day that God has marked on his calendar. I don't know what day that is, so I'm just going to live fearlessly. (laughs) And he lived fearlessly. George Whitfield said the same thing. You know, Mr. Whitfield, you're preaching yourself to death. I don't care. 
I'm invincible until God's day, and then I'll die. And that's going to happen regardless. So I'm going to spend myself. I'm going to wear out rather than rust out. And that's pastorally. Howard has said something very important here. We see the... Has anyone ever seen a quilt? And on the back side, it's just an indistinguishable mess of threads. And then you go around and you see the front side and there's a picture on it. Okay? That picture is God's providential governance of the world. What me and you see at this point is just the undistinguishable mass of threads that we don't know what they're doing on the backside because we're just seeing it from our perspective. Once we step into glory, we're going to see this big mosaic and we're going to say, wow, that was the greatest story ever told. Okay? Including the bad guys, including the hard parts. Who was next? Alfred. And it, Mr. Weeb, did you also have your hand up? Okay, let's let Alfred go, and then you can decide whether you want to go or not. And if the goal is to have no problem passages, and is that the goal of everyone in this room? Are we all committed? Let's have no problem passages. Who's with me? No problem passages. Come on, I'm not convinced. <laughs> Who's committed to no problem passages in the Bible? That is a very lukewarm response. We better turn up the heat here. Okay. We ought to have no problem passages. That means if God says hamstring the horses and kill everybody. That's good. That is good. That is holy. That is right. That's not instructions for me and you to do that right now, but that means this was good. Because if a little seed of idolatry is left over, and that little seed happens to be a cute girl, and one of your boys finds her cute and marries her, guess what's going to happen to your children? idolatry gets back in. We need to do a scorched earth policy because you people are idolaters and you keep moving into idolatry if you leave even one horse alive. Scorch the whole thing. Pull down the idols. Okay? And there is deep application for that in the world of ideas today. Kill it. Just kill it. If it's a bad idea, just kill it. Don't make friends with it. Don't try to marry it to Christianity. Kill it. Kill it dead. Root and branch and think like a Christian. Marry like a Christian. Okay? All the way down. All the way up. Mr. Weeb. We don't worry about that here. <laughs> Okay, 
So Mr. Weeb is picking up. Were you saying I should repeat? Yeah, okay. I'm sorry. I haven't done a very good job of that. What Mr. Weeb is saying is going back to the picture of uh, could you rejoice at God's determination of uh, judging your mother in hell? And he's asking, is that such a hypothetical that we couldn't even really conceive of it? Because will we see what's going on in hell from heaven? Am I understanding you correctly? Okay. Yeah. Right. Um, and that is a fair enough point. We don't know what we'll see and what we won't see. I think there too, our view of heaven gets very sentimental and I think is actually one of the most unforgivable things in contemporary Christian theology is what we've done with heaven. Right? Because it's all about fishing and golf with grandpa and, and we advance the resurrection to now even though it's clearly not happened yet. And we do all kinds of weird, sentimental, bad things with heaven that there's almost never a good time to correct because it's always too close to a funeral where somebody just committed one of these <laughs> thought crimes. So it's never, <laughs> it's never the right time to correct bad ideas about heaven. But I think uh, we need to because we have a very sentimental view. Uh, will I recognize my grandpa Plett, who I was very close with in heaven? I think probably. I don't know that. But, you know, I, I can't imagine that that's going to be the first thing that I think of when I get to see <laughs> the blazing glory of King Jesus. And I'm going to go talk to grandpa about his 1944 Model D that we worked on together. Come on. The king of heaven and earth is there in this refulgent glory. I, I don't think the things that we think are important are going <laughs> to feel terribly important. I think the best thing about seeing grandpa, if I recognize him, will be that he's also worshiping the same Lord that I am. That's the joy of heaven. And I really think we need to do funerals way better than we do. We, we need to quit talking about dead people as though they're already resurrected when we just put their body in the ground. They're not resurrected yet. <laughs> they're somehow in the presence of the Lord. The judgment hasn't happened. The resurrection is yet future. There's lots of things yet future. We can say they're in the presence of the Lord, but we've got such little information about that intermediate state that the departed saints are in right now. I don't think we can say much about it. They're in the presence of the Lord. It's good and they're waiting for the final resurrection. And beyond that, I, we probably are guessing to a large degree <laughs> and sentimentalizing, I, I think. Pete. Well, there's no crossing over, depending on how far you want to push it. it. It's possible maybe to see across, but it's impossible to travel across. But how, I don't know how far you can push that.
exactly. But that's one of those things because marriage, if it's working well, is in a real sense the closest taste to heaven we get on earth. And if it's working well and we get that little taste of heaven, it's hard to see how that's going to drop away for the greater. Right? C.S. Lewis talks about that of a, a child who's playing in a mud puddle in the slums and he's perfectly happy to stay there. And to us, that's sex and drink and whatever. We're happy to stay with our small things because we've never been to the sea. Right? That little boy's only happy because he hasn't seen the sea yet. We're only happy with our little things because we haven't seen what is it like to see the ascended Lord in glory. And then I agree, I don't think we're going to be sad that there's no marriage in heaven. I, I can't imagine we'll be sad about that. Well, <laughs> yeah, okay, yes, the great, our small marriages point to the great marriage. Yeah, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's right, and we are his collective bride. Yes, that is true. I know I've talked about it before, but this is so important. Am I too hard on evangelical funerals? Or do you guys see the same things that I see at funerals? I think we should think about Don. I just had a thought, which can be dangerous. Please do. Buy me some time.
Amen. I had it here. What I was thinking of was going back to Mr. Weeb and this idea of watching God's wrath. And I'll grant this is in symbolic language, but I think it does portray a truth. If you want to go to your Bibles, go to Revelation 14. And I happen to believe that one of the motifs, there's several, Revelation is a complex book. I think one of the motifs of Revelation is that this is a heavenly worship service. And this is all about the glory of God. So in Revelation 14, let's start at verse 6. There's three angels here. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name." Does it sound like the destruction of idolaters is a good thing over which we ought to give God glory? Angels are rejoicing about this. The smoke of their torment is holy incense that is pleasing to God. The vindication of the martyrs and of God's saints are vindicated. This is a holy aroma, the torment of God's anger. We don't talk that way today. <laughs> in the church. But the Bible is not ashamed of that. The Bible's not ashamed of that. And when we think about this too, when we talk about this, but now that we're right in this text, when we talk about heaven and hell, and we present hell as though it's just this Christless eternity, hell is just a gray void, and God's not there in any sense. And it's true, God's blessings are not there in any sense. And so there's a passage in Thessalonians that talks that way. All of God's grace has been removed. So it is Christless in that sense, and all the benefits of Christ have been removed. But if you're one of these people, what is the very worst part of eternity? You cannot escape the searing gaze of the Lamb. That's the worst part of hell, is you cannot escape Christ. You cannot get away from Him. That is the very worst torment of hell. You cannot get away. And you will not bend the knee. So you're just going to gnaw your tongue and curse in anguish forever and ever and ever. And to use the language of Jonathan Edwards, then you're going to look at the clock. After 10,000 years of gnawing on your tongue, cursing the lamb and refusing to repent of your sexual immorality. And not one second of time will have passed. Okay? 
the Bible is not ashamed of that kind of language. So again, I'll ask, why are we ashamed to think this way? Why are we ashamed to talk this way? We want to think like Christians all the way down. And this isn't the only thing. We don't need to be all hellfire and brimstone all the time. But this is the backdrop which our gospel makes sense. And so to go back to Alfred's point, the fact that we're redeemed from that outcome is amazing. Okay? It really is. Because that is the outcome we all deserve. We're all idolaters. We're all Babylonians in that sense. It's what we deserve. And Christ came on a rescue mission. So let's never say it's not good enough. He's not given me enough things. This is what he freed us from. Inga's asking how pastors handle this if they're asked to preach at funerals and weddings and the family requests the text. Is there a limitation to how we handle it? Am I, am I rephrasing that properly? Okay, so everyone's heard. There is a limitation. I think it's fitting if the couple chooses a text or the family chooses a text. But the minister's job is still to be faithful with that text. You still can't treat it like Plato and do whatever you want with it. it they pick the text, they'll preach it faithfully. And I agree, funerals and weddings are a great opportunity to present the gospel clearly because you've got people that wouldn't hear the gospel message otherwise. Um, so I think we just have to be faithful with the text, whatever you choose. And, and because the Bible is gospel-aimed, ultimately every text gets you to Christ. Right? My favorite wedding that I've done so far has been Keith and Kara Mays, where uh, their wedding text, <laughs> do you guys remember? It was? Yeah. Genesis 15, God cutting a covenant with Abram and walking between these slaughtered animals. Best wedding text ever. <laughs> Because, you know what's in that text, is not the word marriage, not the word wedding. The covenant is in there. Okay? And God passing between the pieces of these slaughtered animals is God saying, so be it to me if I ever violate my promise to you. A covenant is blood serious, is in that text. That's a great wedding text. A covenant is blood earnest. A covenant is serious business. And Keith and Karamay invited a bunch of people to watch them make those vows. And they said, essentially, so be it to me if I don't keep the terms of this covenant. Keith and Karamay gave everyone their permission to say, come talk to me if I start violating my side of the covenant. Because God passed between the pieces. And there's blood and guts and steam and pots sizzling. That's what they said. Great wedding text.
Yeah, amen. It's a good place to leave it. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, I want to thank you for your word. Thank you for the discussion that happens. Lord, and again, I can't thank you enough for even when we are dealing with topics that are emotional and topics that are difficult and pastorally practical, and some of us have walked through some of these things. Lord, I thank you that you are knitting together a body of believers here who want to obey your word, to understand it, and to apply it no matter what the headwinds that we're facing are, no matter what our emotions tell us, that we have both feet planted firmly in your word. Lord, and I pray that that spirit and that commitment would never go away. Lord, by your spirit, keep us grounded in your word. Keep us grounded in your glory. Help us to ask every question and to think every thought in subjection to you. How all thoughts, all things, all events, all history redounds to your glory in the story that you are telling. There's no missing details. There's no unnecessary details added in. Lord, help us to see. Help us to stay focused on you. Thank you for this discussion. Thank you for this group of believers. And I pray that your spirit uh, would continue to work uh, this morning as we prepare our hearts for worship. I pray that it would be reverent. I pray that it would be uh, true, that it would be beautiful, that you would be glorified in it, uh, and that you would minister to us through your word, through music, through our prayers, through our fellowship. Lord, thank you. And I pray now that you'd be with us as we um, fellowship and then move into corporate worship. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. And then move into corporate worship. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. And amen.